Good morning, everybody. It's wonderful to be here on this beautiful sunny morning. Fortunately, it's a lot cooler than it was for us as we were in Brazil last week. Uh, Brazil was um, facing a, a record-breaking heat wave. They recorded the highest ever temperature in Brazil while we were there. It was a little warm, but we had a, an incredible time. I landed, I think, on Wednesday, and uh, yeah, I'm looking forward, hopefully, to some of you guys joining us in Brazil in the future. I know Marius has been one or two others, and it uh, really is an incredible trip, and this trip was was really uh, quite remarkable at times. One of my highlights, uh, we did a church camp. I think there was 270, 280 people there. And um, God was really speaking very clearly throughout, uh, throughout the weekend. And on the Saturday morning, I preached on uh, Judgment Day. <laughs> the most important day of your life. The day that you'll stand before Jesus. And uh, it was incredible because Ronaldo, my good friend who leads one of the churches there, was translating for me. And I could tell as I was translating, the Holy Spirit hit him. And he was getting so emotional, he just wanted the preach to end so that he could respond to Jesus. And, and as I was preaching, people were, were, were beginning to weep in repentance. One guy was grabbing hold of his chair in fear of, of the Lord. Um, I wouldn't say quite Jonathan Edwards yet, but we were on our way <laughs> and we saw salvations. There was a guy who'd, um, about 40, 50 guys came from Belo Horizonte, which is about a eight, nine hour bus trip. And uh, so they'd hired a bus and the bus driver sat in on that meeting and got saved and said to them, hey, you don't even have to pay me for this. So uh, yeah, we saw all kinds of incredible things happening. And then one of my highlights, um, and this is what we're going to be talking a bit about this morning, uh, on the last day of the camp is we did some water baptisms. Who's been to Brazil and seen some water baptisms? They do it much better than we do. I think they've got a much better understanding of just what a glorious moment it is. And what, what they do, they all gather around and they'll, they'll introduce the person getting baptized and their testimony. And then everybody begins to chant in, in Portuguese. But what the chanting translated is, come die, come die, come die. <laughs> and the person comes and then they get baptized. And as they come out of the water, all the friends just jump in with them and embrace them and pray for them. Because it's, it's this sense of family. Because you've been baptized into something. You're baptized into a community, into a family. But I want to unpack a little bit about what baptism is, the significance of it, why we do it the way we do it, why we can maybe do it slightly differently, I don't know. Um, but ultimately, baptism is an act of faith. You know, often people come to me and they'll say to me, Mike, I got baptized as a youngster, but I don't know, do I need to get baptized again? And my answer is, Jesus was only crucified once. He doesn't have to be re-crucified every time we, you know, go astray. So, but the, the question is, when you were baptized for the first time, were you doing it in faith? Was it an act of faith, or were you doing it because people told you to, it was the done thing, your friends were doing it? Because if you go into that water and it's not an act of faith, you're not getting baptized, you're just getting wet. <laughs> 
And faith is the currency of heaven, and it always has been. You know, some people teach that there are different ages of human history in which God judged people according to different standards. But the Scriptures don't tell us that. The Scripture says that God has always required the same thing. And what God has always required was faith that results in obedience. That's always been the case. From the very beginning, so Adam and Eve were in the garden, and they were told, well, you can eat anything, any fruit from any tree apart from one, which is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? In other words, God was saying to them, you don't need to know good and evil, right? You need to trust me. And Satan came and says, you will be like God, deciding for yourselves what is good. You can rely on your own judgment. And God would say, no, no, you don't rely on you. You have faith in me. And that faith, if you really trust me to show you the way, will result in obedience. And that obedience would be not to eat that fruit. They failed. Later comes Abraham. And God calls Abraham. And what does Abraham do? He leaves his father's home. He circumcises himself. And we read in Romans that it wasn't the circumcision that saved him. It was the faith that saved him. Faith in God. This belief that God had called him. And circumcision was an act of obedience, as was the willingness to give up his son. It was a faith that resulted in obedience. Later, Moses comes along. And he comes up with this whole law and sacrificial system. But it wasn't sacrificing lambs that got people saved. In the book of Hebrews, it says God never required the blood of animals. It was the faith of the people. And the sacrifice was, was their faith in action. It was an overflowing of obedience. It was faith that results in obedience. Throughout the Old Testament, we see it time and time and time and time again. Until Jesus comes along. And how is salvation obtained now? What kind of faith? Faith that results in obedience. That's what James tells us. That faith without works is dead. It's not, it's not an intellectual understanding of. You know, and I often say this, the demons believe, they have faith that Jesus is the Son of God. They believe that he died and rose again. They believe that he's coming back to judge the world. But it's not going to save them because it doesn't result in obedience. And interestingly, that faith that leads to obedience has always been faith in Christ. Even in the Old Testament, it was faith in Christ. We read that in Hebrews, that even Moses, he says, he considered the reproach of Christ greater than the riches of Egypt. He was looking forward. Moses was looking forward. Abraham was looking forward. They were all looking forward. In fact, Job, who probably lived before Moses. Some scholars believe that the events of Job are the oldest recorded events outside of the Adam and Eve story, right? 
and in the midst of everything that he's going through and his interactions with God, he makes this profound statement. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end, he will stand upon the earth. He's looking forward to Christ. The Old Testament figures were saved. How were they saved? Through Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the only name by which man can be saved. He's the only way in which man has ever been able to be saved. And that's why the Old Testament is just full of Christ from Genesis to Malachi. And then it comes to us and we, it's a little bit easier for us than the Old Testament characters because hindsight is a lot easier, isn't it? And we look back to this person, Jesus, and his existence. And his death and his resurrection. And it's our faith that leads us into obedience. And obedience is a big deal to God. It's a big deal to Jesus. At the end of Matthew's gospel, the so-called Great Commission... Just before he's leaving his disciples, he, he, he gives them a last message. And you've got to know, if, if, you're, if you're with the people that you love and you're going to go away, and you think, what do I want to leave you with? I'm not going to leave you with my shopping list or, you know. I'm going to leave you with, this is, this is the thing on my heart. This is burning. This is, this is what you need to remember. Remember my last words. And, and what was the last instructions of Jesus? Matthew 28, 19. As you go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. And what's interesting there, and it's a very important point, he doesn't say teach them all that I've commanded. He says teach them to obey all all that I've commanded. And part of that is baptism. Part of that is an instruction. Jesus has said, we've got to baptize people and we've got to get baptized. And it's like, okay, Jesus, if that's the first thing you did when you started your ministry, Matthew chapter 3, and if it's the last thing you talked about, before you, last, you left your disciples, perhaps it's important for us to understand, perhaps it's important for us to appreciate, and perhaps it's important for us to do. If we are to be disciples, if we are to be followers, and don't forget the early followers of Jesus were not called Christians. The name Christian came later. It started as an insult, actually. But originally, they were called disciples or followers of the way. The, the descriptions of the followers of Jesus said these guys actually are obedient to the instructions of this man, Jesus of Nazareth. And we live in a generation, unfortunately, where people have somehow divorced salvation and obedience. You know, I stuck my hand up once in, in a church meeting, so I've got my ticket to heaven. Now I can live however I want because Jesus is just all loving and groovy and merciful. Now, obedience is a requirement. 
Because if there's no, it's not that we're saved by works, it's that if there's no obedience, then faith is not at work in us. And the first step of obedience, according to this and other scriptures that we'll look, look at, seems to be baptism. But a challenge for us is, it's a bit weird, isn't it? Let, don't, have you ever, maybe it's just me, but it's like, going getting pushed under the water, like, what's that about? It's a bit strange. It's like these strange ceremonies and stuff. Is, is that just me? Like, it, it's quite alien to our culture. But it wasn't alien to the culture in which Jesus came and into which he was talking. And when we understand that, and when we unpack it a little bit, then, and when we see some of the pictures that Jesus and the early uh, Bible writers used, then it can give us a deeper understanding. But I want to say this. While it's good to do things in understanding, understanding isn't necessary for obedience. I know that as a parent. <laughs> if I tell my, my daughters are old now, so it, it, different stage of life, but when they were little and I'd say, tidy your room or brush your teeth, why do I have to brush my teeth? Like, because I've told you to. Like, I'm not going to go into a long explanation of tooth decay and bacteria and the benefits of fluoride. You do this because I've told you to. But I don't understand. Well, that's okay. I'll tell you what. You don't have to do it until you fully understand. And when you fully understand, then you can do it. That would make me a bad parent. Understanding can wait. Obedience can't. Yeah. In fact... You know, this modern parenting that, you know, we've got to sit and, and dialogue with our children so that they can understand. And it's like, you know what that's going to produce? It's going to produce death. Because if you're standing by the roadside and your child wants to run across the road and you shout, stop, you want to have trained your child so they stop first and then ask why. Because <laughs> you're not going to get a chance to explain. Does that make sense? And we've got that, this gentle parenting now. Man. Yes, it's good to explain sometimes to your children so that they understand that your instructions are good. And that's what the Lord does to us. Often he explains to us why he asks us to do what he asks us. But sometimes, like with Job, it's, why must I do this? Because I said so. You know, that's, that, that was God's answer to Job. After all Job's prayers, this is how God answers Job. Job, who are you to question me? And Job repents and says, yeah, you're right. I have no understanding. And so sometimes I come across people that go, I haven't got baptized yet because I don't really understand it. And that's not a reason, it's an excuse. But it's good to try and understand. And we're going to unpack it this morning. Does that make sense to you? Okay. So Jesus, in John chapter 13, sorry, in Matthew chapter 4 says, follow me. Follow me, he says. And the disciples followed him. But then in John 13, 
Simon Peter said, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I'm going, you can't follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. And the point is this, that they couldn't go with him because where Jesus was going, only Jesus could do. Jesus was going to the cross. He was going to die for us. We can't die for ourselves. We can't make atonement for ourselves. We can't do anything to wipe away our sins. We can't do anything to deserve salvation. We can't do it. He had to go ahead of us and do that. But he said, later, you can go. And what he's saying is, I have to die for you, but then as a result of that, you have to take up your cross on a daily basis. You have to die to self. And baptism, amongst other things, is us symbolically following Christ, accepting what he did on the cross and say, I am now going to appropriate, appropriate that for myself and I'm going to die to self. I'm going to die to my rights, my privileges, my old way of life. He was going to be crucified. He was going to die. He was taking our punishment. We couldn't make that journey. There's no way to save ourselves. It's only because of his sacrifice that we can come into relationship with him, receive forgiveness, and receive the ability to live that life that pleases God. When we talk about obedience, the only way we can live that obedient life is through the grace that he pours out on us because of the sacrifice he made. It's through the cross that he reveals himself to us. He reveals himself as king and as Lord. And then he asks for our obedience. He is our Lord and our Savior. And he can't be our Savior if he's not our Lord. So how do we follow? What's the first step? Well, we want to imitate him. And his first step was baptism. Likewise, at the day of, of, of Pentecost, Peter gets up and he preaches, and 3,000 people got saved that day. And 3,000 people were baptized. They didn't ask why. They didn't have to go through a, a course they didn't have to wait six months until the elders thought they were mature enough and had full understanding. On one day, 3,000 got saved and got baptized. Now, have you ever wondered how they managed to baptize 3,000 people in the middle of Jerusalem all in one day? Because the facilities were there. The facilities were there at the temple. Because the temple had... Hundreds of baths there for the purposes of baptism. Because within Jewish culture, they had this concept of baptism. They didn't see it quite the way Jesus saw it and what Jesus made it. But 
It was close enough. They understood the concept. So, for example, if I was a Gentile and I wanted to convert to Judaism, I would go through certain uh, processes and rituals, the last of which is I would go through the water of baptism. And by doing that, it would, I would be dead to my old way of life and I would be raised up the other side a member of the community of faith. It's how I entered into that family, that nation of Israel. So one of the things about baptism we, we should understand, it's not a standalone, isolated, individual thing. As I get baptized, yes, it's about what Jesus did in me, but it's about what I'm leaving behind, but what I'm walking into as well. I'm walking into a new identity, a new family, a new nation. And in fact, in uh, Colossians, Paul talks about baptism in light of circumcision. He compares the two. Because in the Old Testament, when a child was born, it was circumcised to show that it was now a member of the nation of Israel. It was a member of the community of faith. Does that make sense? And baptism does the same thing. We're baptized into a family, into a community, into a nation. Now, that is the rationale why some people believe in baptizing babies, right? Because circumcision took place at, what, eight days old? So if you could get circumcised at eight days old, then you could get baptized at eight days old. That, that makes sense, right? Except they're missing a key point here that Israel was a community of faith that you were born into physically, but now the community of faith that we have, you're not born into physically, you're born into spiritually. That's right. When we become the family of God, and the way into the family of God is not through physical birth, but through rebirth. Because it's quite clear Time and time again where baptism is mentioned, it's repent and be baptized. And I've met many babies in my life and I've not seen any of them repent. <laughs> now, if you have a theology where you've got a national church, like the Dutch Reformed Church or the Church of England, where you're thinking is anybody born into that nation is born into that church, that justifies child baptism. But that's not biblical. The fact that you were born into South Africa does not make you saved. It makes you South African. And there was a time where, you know, people just assumed if I'm English, I'm, I'm a Christian. No. We are, we're born again into the kingdom of God, not born physically. That's what John says to Nicodemus, yeah, in John chapter 3. But the analogy holds that as soon... At the earliest possible time that that child became, came into the community of faith, it was circumcised. So it is that the earliest possible point at which you are come into the community of faith, you should be baptized. But we come into the community of faith, into salvation, 
into relationship with Jesus, not through natural birth, but through rebirth, through repentance and an accepting of what Christ did on the throne, on the cross. And it's important that we see that because every time we see people getting baptized in the New Testament, it says they repented and were baptized. And sometimes it will say, for example, Cornelius, Cornelius and his whole household. So I say, ah, you see, that must have included babies. But that's an argument from silence. It's not an argument from good theology. And in fact, even Cornelius and his household, it says they repented, they were worshipping, they were... And so, that is why baptism is not something we do as a ritual for children, but we do it for those who have repented and accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. So people often ask, ask me, Mike, do you baptize children? And my answer is, yeah, as long as that child is old enough to have accepted what Christ did for them. Yeah? So why do we, why, why baptism? Why this strange ceremony? And I do want to say, I think in... In many circles, we've reduced baptism just to some small, insignificant thing. Baptism is powerful. It is a sacrament. And a sacrament is an act that if done by faith, Christ himself is present in the act. And it's not simply, I think, in reaction to... Um, some churches' theology and some historical views, many churches today think it's merely symbol, it's just a symbol. It's more than a symbol. It is a powerful spiritual act that when done in faith can unlock incredible spiritual power. I have personally, myself, seen people healed and delivered of demon the demonic as they've been baptized. There was a young girl we were praying for several years ago, and uh, she was really battling with dem demonic oppression. She was saved, she loved Jesus, but in worship, every time we sang about the blood of Jesus, she would feel nauseous, she, could, uh, she would become mute. She, she couldn't sing about the blood of Jesus. And so we're praying for her and praying for her and we weren't getting breakthrough. And then one day I just said to her, hey, have you been baptized? And she said, no. I said, well, I think that will be important. I think that's, that will be key for us. So she said, okay, let's do it tonight. She said, but I want to get baptized in the ocean. Okay. Off we go to Big Bay, July, 8 p.m. at night. <laughs> Yeah, I arrive in my baggies. She arrived in a wetsuit. <laughs> now, I just want to say, I just want to say, this isn't in the Bible, but my personal conviction is, if you do it in a wetsuit, it doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> so we go out, and, and it's choppy, and it it is freezing. So I stand with her, and there's a few people on the beach watching, and I said to her. Do you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? 
And she went, starts manifesting. Now, I can't say this was faith. I think it was fear of hypothermia. I said, this is not the time. Be quiet. (laughs) She confessed Christ. We baptized her on the beach. We got off the beach, prayed for her, and she was free. Many times I've seen that. I've seen people physically healed. Andrew Selly, who leads Josh Jen, and I didn't see this with my own eyes, but I trust him. In, he's a man of integrity. Uh, he talks about a Satanist that he led to the Lord who had all kinds of demonic and satanic tattoos. That when he came out of the waters of baptism, those tattoos had disappeared. And this should not surprise us because one of the pictures we have of baptism from the Bible, and we read about this um, in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 2, it talks about the baptism of the Israelites when they went through the Red Sea. When Moses led the Israelites through the Red Sea, that was a baptism. And you go, how could that be a baptism? They stayed dry. But here's the picture. The Israelites were in slavery. They were in bondage. And Moses, who's a picture of Jesus, comes and he leads them out of captivity to the promised land. But on the journey, the forces of evil, the forces of Pharaoh, want to come and bring them back into captivity. Yeah? And God miraculously delivers the Israelites as they cross the Red Sea they stay dry but who doesn't the Egyptian army the enemy those forces which wanted to bring them back into captivity were drowned and destroyed and from that moment on there was no chance that they would ever be brought back into slavery and there's a picture there that baptism is not the moment we are saved But it is a key element of our journey from freedom into the promised land where the forces of darkness that want to drag us back into slavery can lose their power and be destroyed. It's a powerful picture, right? And so many Christians I I, I talk to are dealing with stuff that just bondage and so on. And I'm like, have you been baptized? No, well, it's no wonder you're still battling with those things that want to hold you in bondage. But again, I want to emphasize, it's not baptism that gets you saved. Okay? So some people, and they, some people just don't use the brains very well. They say, they say, no, no, baptism isn't necessary. The thief on the cross, he got to heaven, and he wasn't baptized, right? Which is true, Right? So what we say is salvation isn't found in baptism. Salvation is found in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus, to the thief on the cross, said, today you will be with me in paradise. But I can guarantee you, if that thief was taken down from the cross and hadn't died that day, he would have gone and got baptized. Because if you're saved, if you come into a relationship with Jesus then the norm is to start walking out obedience. And the first step of obedience, as we've seen from Matthew 28, as we see from Acts 2, is 
What must I do to be saved? Repent and be baptized. Another picture of baptism that we find is in 1 Peter 3.21 where he talks about Noah. He says, Noah was saved through the water. Why? Because God spoke to him. He believed. He had faith. And his faith resulted in what? Obedience. He built an ark. Yeah? It would have been really, really bad news for Noah if he said, yeah, I believe a flood's coming. Hallelujah, flood's coming. God spoke. (laughs) But if he hadn't actually got a hammer in his hand and started building the ark as a fruit of his faith, then he would not have been saved. God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, in eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. That because of faith and obedience, those waters, every, all the, the unrighteousness was washed away. The unrighteousness of the earth. And in fact, he talks here about, um, it's not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it's not the water that saves you. It's the resurrection of Jesus that saves you. But one element of baptism, and I think we've, this is an important one. You can say, why does it say that water baptism washes us? Is it not the blood of Jesus that washes us? And in a sense, it's both. Because from God's perspective, the blood of Jesus washed me clean. So when he looks at me, he sees Christ. But there's two people in this relationship. The other one is me. And when I look at myself, my conscience bothers me. Even when I know I've been forgiven. And one of the things that baptism does, it washes my conscience clean. A friend of mine told the story of a man he led to the Lord. And this man had been a traveling salesman. And... uh, He'd been married, but as he traveled around, he would be in different towns and he would find different women and sleep with different women. Then he got saved. And his wife got saved and he confessed to his wife and she forgave him. But he said, I can't forgive myself. I can't forgive myself for what I've done, the life I've lived, how I've hurt God and hurt my wife. And my friend said, you need to be baptized. And so they baptized this man. And he went in the water and he came out the other side. Then he baptized his wife. And they embraced with clean consciousness that everything they'd done had been wiped away, cleansed from them. Just as water can cleanse the body, it cleanses our consciences. See, this is the powerful thing about baptism. Yes, it's something we do in obedience, but God being a good God doesn't just think of random things for us to do. Does it feel like that to you sometimes? It used to feel like that. God, like, you're just making up random rules. But God, knowing all things, knows what's best for us. And he understands that the act of baptism is good for us. 
Another picture that we have, and it's from the very word baptizo, and baptizo was used in the textile industry, and it literally means to immerse. And what you would do is you'd take a piece of cloth, and you would immerse it in the dye, and when it came out, it was a different color. It was a different thing. It was no longer recognizable. That is a picture of baptism, that I go in one person, I come out another. And that's not just a washing. There's an adding. There's something that's adding to the quality of that textile. Does that make sense? It's like, uh, and again, we've got to hold truth's intention, right? What, one of the great challenges we have, people take one truth, run with one truth without the balancing truth and, and get into error. So has Christ given us everything we need? To live a life that's pleasing to him. Yes, he has. But yet, the scripture still says to add faith, add to our faith goodness and self-control and brotherly kindness and brotherly affection and love and all of those things. So there's like, I've been given everything, but I need sometimes to ask for more. And baptism is one of the ways in which we obtain something from the Lord in terms of our new life. It's a, saying good, it's a saying goodbye to an old way of life, but it's also embracing a new life and everything we need for that new life. It's saying goodbye to your old identity, but it's embracing a new identity. One of the challenges, and I've been, uh, I've been writing, um, I'm in the middle of trying to write some resources to help uh, with addictions. And one of the challenges with addictions is people try and give up their addiction without replacing it. And then you're very rarely successful. The scriptural principle is put off the old and put on the new. Like even depression and, and, and anxiety. And I'm not one of those who say, simply says, you know, Depression is because you're not praying enough or you don't have enough faith or, you know, just get over yourself. Depression is a real problem. It, it can have physical um, causes and everything else. But in, in overcoming anxiety and depression, it's not enough to say, stop being anxious. It's not enough, right? And again, the biblical language, Isaiah 61, is put on a garment of praise instead of a spirit of heaviness. There's a putting off and a putting on. And baptism isn't just a putting off. There's a putting on of your new identity in Christ. Is this making sense? It, you're all very quiet this morning. Romans 6 from verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And this is the final picture we have of baptism. That baptisms are the happiest funerals you will ever go to. 
getting baptized, essentially saying, I'm identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so what you're saying is, I'm going to be buried in the water. Then I'm going to be resurrected, a new person. Not the old person, but a new person. So I, I died, I went under, I was buried, and that's why immersion is probably the best way to do it. The word baptizo means to be immersed. You know, generally when people die, you don't sprinkle a bit of earth on them. Not very effective. You, you bury people, and then there's a resurrection that takes place. And that resurrection into a new life. I want to tell you two stories. One of them might be shocking to you. The one is about a man called Jeffrey Dahmer. Who's heard of Jeffrey Dahmer? Jeffrey Dahmer abused and murdered 17 young men. From the age of 18, he was an alcoholic, a homosexual, a pedophile, a serial murderer, and a cannibal. In 1992, he was sentenced to 15 consecutive life sentences. There is no way he could serve his sentence. His sin was too great. His crime was too great. There is no way he could ever fulfill the consequences of his evil acts. While he was in prison, he started a correspondence course from a Bible school. He completed the course and then said he wanted to be baptized. The pastor met with him and was convinced that although he was a very strange dude, there was a genuine sense of repentance. And he baptized him. Shortly later, in 1994, he was murdered in prison by another prisoner. He could never serve out his sentence, no matter how long he lived. But upon his death, he was released, and the law no longer had a hold on him. One writer, one newspaper journalist wrote this with a kind of sarcastic tone. It appears that this Jeffrey Dahmer who killed 17 young men, who deprived the, these victims of their lives, who deprived families of their loved ones, and then with baptism he learns he can undo all of that and still get to heaven. What a deal. And yet it's true. It's true. Even Jeffrey Dahmer was not beyond the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And if he was genuinely repentant, and here's the thing that offends even me sometimes. You know the gospel is a little bit offensive? That that really nice old granny you know, who was nice to everybody and would never hurt a fly, but didn't know Jesus, does not receive eternal life. But Jeffrey Dahmer, who sexually abused, murdered, and ate parts of 17 different individuals, is our brother in Christ and will spend eternity with us.
Do you wrestle with that? Do you know why we wrestle with that? Because we don't realize how evil we are. We don't actually realize that from God's perspective, we think we're closer to God than Jeffrey Dahmer. We are way closer to Jeffrey Dahmer than we are to God. But salvation can reach everybody. And nobody is beyond. Nobody's too good and nobody's too evil. And this newspaper journalist who said sarcastically, oh yeah, just with one baptism, everything can be wiped away. What a deal. Yeah, it's a deal beyond comprehension. But that's the gospel. This is why baptism is so powerful. Because it's a public demonstration that this is what I believe. That I deserve death. But Jesus died for me. I deserve to be buried and, and for all time in hell. But Jesus descended into hell on my behalf that I could be resurrected with him. Another story from World War I. A French writer overheard a conversation. And in the trenches, there were lots of wounded men. And one man was lying there mortally wounded. He knew he only had a minute or two left to live. And he grabbed his friend. And he said to his friend, listen, Dominique, you've lived a very bad life. Everywhere you're wanted by the police. But there are no convictions against me. My name is clear. So here, take my wallet. Take my papers. Take my identity. Take my good name. Take my life. Hand me your papers that I may carry all of your crimes away with me in death. He died. And his friend was given a new life, a new identity. He was resurrected because of his friend's death. Romans 6.5 says, If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And that's an, a powerful picture. Hey, you've lived a terrible life. There are convictions you can never clear. But here, take my identity and I will take yours. And that's what happened on the cross. The divine exchange. Where Jesus said, you give me everything you've got. And all you've got is your sin and your shame and your guilt. And he says, I'll take it. And in its place, I'll give you what I've got. My righteousness. And when we accept that, then baptism is an identification with that. That my old life was done away with in that exchange. My old life was nailed to the cross. My guilt, my sin, and my shame were nailed to that cross. And if I identify with that, if I die to my old way of life, if I die to self, I can be resurrected with a new identity. And my identity is in Christ. We are washed clean. 
Hebrews 10.22, in light of all this, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Under the Old Testament law, in the temple and in the tabernacle, when the priests wanted to go into the holy place, they first had to stop and wash. There was a a big wash basin, a bronze wash basin, and they would have to wash themselves every single time. The psalmist said, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? He has clean hands and a pure heart. But all of that was a picture of Jesus. And the good news is that we don't have to cleanse ourselves every time. You know, some people, some Christians say, I can't worship this morning, I've sinned this week. And you have a misunderstanding. That yes, Jesus wants to deal with your sin, he wants your repentance. But this is what happens is, because of what Jesus did, I can come into his presence, and there in his presence, he'll deal with my sin. Not I have to deal with my sin in order to come into his presence. And that is the right that Jesus gave us through his death. And one of the things that baptism does, as well as being a spiritual dynamic at work that can, that can destroy the works of the evil one and all of those things, it's also a memorial. It's that thing that when the enemy tries to pin things on me and tell me I'm a sinner and, and, and try and link me with guilt and shame, I can say, no, you're talking to a dead man. That man no longer lives. For I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. And how do I know that? Because of the conviction of faith in my heart and looking back to that day and saying, that is a day when Mike was buried. The gospel is offensive because it's so hard to get our heads around. I've been following Jesus for 50 years. I still struggle to get my head around it because it is a truth that's too glorious to comprehend. His love is deeper and wider and higher and longer and stronger than we could comprehend. But when we get even the smallest revelation of it by His grace... It has to cause a response. We have to respond. How can we not? How can we not? There may be some people here this morning. You still haven't decided to follow the king. Maybe you believe that he exists. Maybe you've been doing the religious thing. You need to know he is king and he wants us to follow him. But we can't make it in our own strength by our own efforts or by trying to live a good life. 
What we need is to recognize that he died for us. He was buried and he was resurrected so that we could gain a new identity, be called holy and acceptable before God, that we could accept his free gift of eternal life, that we could come into his kingdom, into his family, and be part of a community of faith, experiencing new life, a resurrected life, a life free from the power of sin and free from, and free from guilt and shame. then I believe there are people here this morning, you've chosen to follow Jesus, but you haven't been baptized. Baptism isn't an option, it's a command. If we can't follow him in this first step of obedience, then we're going to struggle to follow him in any other areas of obedience. And it's on the basis of faith and repentance. No other qualifications are required. You don't have to reach a certain standard of spirituality or or level of understanding. I love when Philip meets the Ethiopian eunuch on on, on the road and he explains the the scriptures to him. And and the the Ethiopian eunuch, he, he just believes in Jesus. And then he says, is there any reason I can't be baptized? And gets baptized. There is no reason. There is no obstacle to baptism for those surrendered to Jesus and I want to encourage you stop waiting, stop delaying Thomas Akempis said this whoever strives to withdraw from obedience withdraws from grace scary statement and then finally and if you do feel like you need to get baptised let's do it soon Come speak to Neil and we'll make a plan. And we'll gather around and we'll celebrate with you. But for many of us, many of us have been baptized. But we've forgotten that the enemy has been defeated. We've forgotten that Pharaoh's army have been drowned in the seas of baptism. We've forgotten that death has set you free from the punishment of the law. Forgotten that you've been given a new life and a new identity in Christ. You've forgotten that guilt and shame have no place in your new identity. One of the great tragedies of Christendom that I see as I, walk around, as I go through churches is seeing Christians bound in chains that Jesus is already broken and people are carrying broken chains around. Some of you have forgotten that you've been buried, you've died, you've been buried and been resurrected in Christ, that you've been washed clean. You can have a clear conscience and the power of God to live a pleasing life. There was a famous psychiatrist, Carl Menninger. He once said this. If I could go into psychiatric hospitals and convince the patients that their sins were forgiven, 75% of them would walk out the next day. The death of Christ. His blood shed. 
and our identification with that and our baptism is continuing evidence and testimony. And scripture says this, we do it publicly, why? Because it's a testimony to myself, it's a testimony to you, and it's a testimony to the principalities and powers that my sins are forgiven, that my old life has no power, and that I'm resurrected in the identity of Christ. And many of us need to remember that. Not that we take sin lightly, Because it's not that sin is small. It's that the power of the blood of Jesus is so strong. And we need to remember who we are in him. What he's done in our new identities. Amen.